Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. January 16th, 2023, episode 218, In the Car, Part 2. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode. I'm Kevin England. And as promised, this is a follow-on to episode 217, Riding in the Car with Bob. As you would imagine, since it's a follow-on, it is that. A recording that was made in the car coming home from the Hive Life conference. If you didn't listen to that episode, Bob Kloss and I were talking about the conference overall in the previous episode. And then we switched gears and reflected upon our beekeeping seasons leading into winter, through winter, and some of our plans for spring. Along the way, we reflected on some things we heard in the show and just had general conversations as we do, where we speak of things top of mind and reflect back to the show and things we just learned, along with sharing our insights to each other about our impressions on how things are going. You'll hear in the opening that I reflected in and kind of reminiscing about what it's like to try this thing called treatment-free beekeeper. I am not a treatment-free beekeeper, but I guess I am because this season I'm doing an experiment to see how that goes and I'll catch you up on how that's going at the outset and then it goes on from there. I don't know that it needs any further introduction other than to say that Like the previous recording, this one's made in the car. And yes, all the road noise and thumps from the cracks in the road and other things that go on while you're recording driving down the interstate are part of the recording. Did my best, as with the previous one, to try and clear up some of the road noise and make the sound a little more intelligible. Hopefully I did a reasonable job at that. And that's all the preamble I'm going to give you. I'll be back at the end to just share a couple thoughts and off we go. Even free. Oh. On the way down here, I said to you, I'm struggling. You're not going to go here, I'm are like, you? Yeah, we are. <laughs> I'm struggling because we're in the midst of this experiment. And we? Because we, you did this to me. You didn't. I did it to myself. But. But I, I'm living the treatment-free lifestyle in my experiment for the first time, and it absolutely kills me to have done nothing. I go into winter in the absolute anti-pattern of everything that I've ever known. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is the time when I start hearing from all the beekeepers about, we started seeing it this week. You saw it, didn't you? Yeah. Their hives are dying. Yep. I've got two dead hives. I went out and checked on this sunny day, and only two were flying, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, so let's go back. What it comes back to is... Wait, I have to do this for the listeners. Go ahead. If you're new to the show, I'm a straight-down-the-middle conventional beekeeper. I will teach you to monitor your mites and treat when the thresholds come and so on. But to catch you up to the rest of the story, Bob and I have been on this program for about four or five years of trying to source and select proper queens that show the ability to overwinter in our region and also um, tolerate varroa mites. And we went in this year as part of the plan to rear queens that have the attributes that we've been looking for and allow them to go unaided for mite treatments. So I'm not a conventional treatment-free beekeeper, and I've turned the approach that we're taking low treatment because I reserve the right that if one of my colonies gets overwhelmed with mites, I'm not making a problem for my neighbors. I'm going to treat it and, and cut it back down and whatever. But So update, I'm just going to do a really abbreviated hive report to say where things are. I went into winter with either 18 or 19 hives. My Ware hive was not a managed hive. One of my hives in my apiary this spring swarmed and moved into the Ware hive. And true to form, since a lot of the queens that we had reared 
years before were in my apiary. I didn't bother with it. I let it be part of the program, even though it's not. Yeah, and it flourished. And it did great it did all year well. long. Yeah. It was dead by December 5th, <laughs> and I have no idea what happened to it. Yeah. Now, you and I were having a conversation. We could spend a moment about that particular box. It's small. The form factor doesn't have a lot of insulative quality. I have no idea if the actual form factor contributes to never overwintered this hot. Yeah. Well, and it has I'm going to call it speed to speed. It probably died of mites, right? Yeah. And did yeah. that, like, fall collapse and, and die. And had I properly managed it with the size and, and resources that the colony had, it probably would have went through. Yeah, may have. I, I'm kind of disappointed, quite frankly, because I really would have loved to have seen that hive come through. But as as a probably sidebar casualty to the program we're running, mm-hmm. unfortunately, it, it bit yep. the bullet. Yep. My other interesting story for you, Bob, I don't think we talked about this. One of the hives that died early for me, and I've, I've lost... The Ware and two other hives so far was one of my eight-frame polystyrene boxes. Mm. You know what was in that? The swarm that I captured earlier in the year out off of 202. That wasn't one of our reared queens. Uh, that hive died. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, now, we, you know, we know that only 20% of swarms make it through. Yeah. So that that's not well, surprising. Well, I'm going to speculate that it had an old queen. Yeah. yeah. And it probably ran out of gas late in the season. I wasn't doing great, but it wasn't awful. It was middle of the road. Yeah. But dead, dead, dead. And interestingly enough, that box was packed with resources. And come spring, when we go to break up hives and build nukes and do whatever, um, there's multiple frames of honey in there that I could use. So in some respects, and I said this last year, every loss is an opportunity in my mind. Because it's good managed comb. There's no disease. It died in wintertime. It's been frozen by the chill of the air. And so it's perfectly suitable comb to put back into service. And, you know, I'll put it in my swarm traps and such. So I, I don't... I've come to terms with losses like that. Well, but, here, here's but the thing. But it wasn't one of our managed queens. It yeah. was one from a swarm. But, but here's the thing. The way you started this conversation, you were describing the feeling, right? And yeah. I think no matter how long you've been keeping bees, whether it's one year, five years, 20 years, every time you have a dead, you see a dead colony of yours, you get that same feeling that in the pit of your stomach. Yeah. I don't care how, how long you've been doing it, right? The first year, it's devastating, right? You've got your two hives, and you do everything right, and then it come, comes the uh, spring the next year, and they're gone, and you're right back to square one. Yeah. And, and we all remember that failing. That first, the first hives that you lose, that feeling never goes away. So to go through this process where you know you're going to lose Seven a certain... Seven stages of grief. Yeah, you're going to lose a certain <laughs> amount of bees. Uh, yeah. You st- you're going to go through that uh, pit, pit of my stomach. I can't stand to watch this. So. so the other colony that didn't make it is the original Russian queen that I brought in from a swarm that I captured from one of our neighbors. Oh, that's the Jim McCauley. Jim McCauley's original Russian queen didn't make it through. Huh. Probably should have been requeened. Yeah. And and that goes to some of what we'll talk about when we go through the lessons. Right. How long does a queen last? Yep. We got some really interesting thoughts on that to talk about in the future. I don't know that my top bar hive is still alive. I can't tell. Mm. Um, that yeah. comes to the dynamic of on a warm day. We had a 60 degree day. The weather's been really crazy, hasn't it? Oh, God, it's, it was, it's 40 degrees right now here it, in Tennessee. It was brutally cold Christmas week. Christmas right? week. Down in the, it was five degrees one morning when I got up. And, and wind chills. The rest of the country had negatives, like yep. negative and, 40. And, and then the next week it was what? 55, 60 degrees, 60 degrees 65 for four degrees. days. Crazy. So all the bees were flying. 
Yep. But if you went and stood in your apiary, you really couldn't tell what was alive and what wasn't because if it was dead, it was getting robbed with vigor. Like, we just talked about the eight-frame hive. Any uninclined beekeeper, myself included, would have had a hard time telling you that that hive was alive or dead, given what was going on at the entrance. You know, typically when you see a hive in a true old-fashioned robbing scenario, you got bees tussling at the entrance and trying to get in robbing crack. stains and other yeah. things. But when there's nobody defending the hive and they could go in there and come and go as they wish, it looks like normal activity mm. at the entrance. Pretty close, yep. The only difference, I would say, is in a typical fully operational hive on a warm day like that where they're doing cleansing flights and stuff, you see the bees at the front entrance doing two things. There are some guards. There are a lot of bees pulling out dead bees if they have the warm enough opportunity to do housekeeping. And the other thing is you see bees at the entrance sitting there warming up their wings before they could fly. If you stand and look, you can observe those things. And when you see those things, you know that bees who were inside the colony are coming out and preparing for some form of flight. Now, if you're in the middle of a 60-degree day and everybody's been out, they've been warmed up, and they've gone out and fly and they're coming back and forth, then you're probably not going to see that. You'd have to be out in the morning to see that type of thing. Yeah. You can tell whether they're alive or not just strictly by observing the bottom board. Now, if you just see them, everybody comes out, and as soon as they come out, they go. They go out and they go. They go out and they go. And they go out and they go. And everybody is landing and going right in. And you're not seeing the cohort of bees on the bottom that are guarding the entrance and doing all that. Then that hive's not alive. It's getting robbed. Well, and this is the thing, especially with new beekeepers, but even more experienced beekeepers, because it is hard to tell. You know, they'll they'll get to 60-degree day. They'll see all of this activity. It's, uh, you know, middle of January, end of January. Oh, my hive is alive. My hive is alive. Well, in reality, it's being robbed out. Right. So the next uh, warm day they have in beginning of February or middle of February, there's no activity at all. Why? Because it's been robbed out already. Right. And they go, oh, my hive was alive a month ago, and now it's dead. Well, no, it's been, it's been dead since December, right? But you just didn't recognize what it, what it was. And it's there's, hard. There's another telltale sign that I want to tell beekeepers about, which is you decide you're going to peek inside the hive. You smoke the entrance. You take the roof off. You take the inner cover, pop it. And as soon as you open the inner cover up, all of a sudden bees start streaming out and they're not interested in you. They fly straight up and out, out. and they just keep coming. Yeah. It's almost like this is the behavior you experience. Oh my God, the chick is up. We got to get out. <laughs> right? Yeah. You've seen it. They all come running to yeah. the top of the frame and take off and fly away. And they just keep coming. Little drabs and drabs. Yeah. Out, 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 out. Those are bees that were robbing the hive. And as soon as the light comes, they feel threatened and they leave and go to safety. And there's another clue. That, that hive is dead. And there's another clue. When you take that inner cover off, you don't get that blast of warm air. Right. Right? So it, it's the combination of reading, you know, reading all of those clues. Yeah, and I, and I saw that when I opened that hive that, yeah. I, that I'm talking about, the swarm hive that didn't make it through. I'm not a big fan of uh, cracking my hives open anytime during I knew that hive was dead, winter. which is why I opened it. Yeah, no, I'm, just, I'm not I criticizing. I'm just saying, you know, a lot of people like to... And there's nothing wrong with it. You get a warmish day, popping the top and looking in. But that's not that's not my style. I, I just leave them. If they're going to die, they're going to die. If they're going to be alive, they're going to be alive. When we teach our beekeepers, I tell them there's absolutely zero reason if you've done good management to go in your hive in January or February. Well, that's true. If you have zero to, reason. Yep. Because you should have fed them till they were abundantly fat and happy. Mm-hmm should be enough bees, enough winter bees. There should bees be more than enough bees, survive. and they do not need to be inspected. Some people want to say, well, I, I saw this on Facebook this week. 
and I, my my brother Keith actually said something to me because um, he had this notion. He said, "You know what I'm thinking? I pulled a bunch of frames of honey at the end of the year, and I have them in reserve." Why wouldn't I, on one of these 60-degree days, go pop a couple of those in just to make sure that they're not going to starve? <laughs> and I didn't chastise him, but I said, listen, you need to think of it differently. You need to feed so much in, in October that the bees are abundantly full of honey stores. And where would you put it? And you don't want to open it up and put it right in the middle of the frame. You'd only put it to the outside. And at this time of year, there should still be two frames to the left, two frames to the left, if not three, full of capped honey, because they haven't gotten there. It's only January. they got to make it to March. Yeah, and my my observation would be, remember, uh, I followed this a couple of years. I had hives on it, uh, hives on scales. Yeah. And we found that during the winter, it's a, a pound and a half to two pounds a week that they're using. So you really don't need to look into them. You have them. 60 pounds yeah, at minimum. You don't really look in, need to look into them until March, April-ish, because that's when they're going to start using four, five, six, maybe more pounds as their brood rearing. That's when they're going to starve. So there's really not a lot of benefit to going in in January because there should be a lot of stores in there. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's enough to get them through March. So, so, so I pound, pound and a half a week, if you yeah. gave them 60 pounds, yeah. they could theoretically go 40 weeks. Yeah. Winter's not 40 weeks long, <laughs> so they have more than enough food. Yep. Again, they starve when they, when they beginning of March, when they go into full-out brood rearing. Now they're really going through stores, and that's when they starve. Forgive me for being who I am. <clears throat> have these moments when I ride in this vehicle and people ride in the back and they ride on a trip with me for a long way eventually they say to me what is that beep I keep hearing and I'm sure it's coming through I think through the thing I'm on automatic cruise control and when it is in the clear it just runs at the speed you set but when it picks up a car in front of you it sets a beep to tell you that it's locked onto the car and it's going to go the speed of that car and then when it clears the car, it beeps again. So if you keep hearing beeps, that's what that is. Yeah. Sorry, squirrel. Well, let's, <laughs> no, let's talk. Let's talk about the car for a minute. This car is really comfortable. Yeah. You know, it's it's good size. You're a big guy. Yep. You know, I, every time you're in my uh, Tacoma, I, I got to duck to get under. Yeah, the it roof. looks like it just doesn't fit you, right? It's like. I can't imagine you driving that thing every day and being comfortable in it. Yeah. Just, it's just not big enough. And this is just, look, it's got, it's got everything and there's plenty of room. It's a pleasure really this, riding This it. Honda Pilot is not an Acura. It's not a, you know, Porsche or whatever. I, I'm sure, you know, when I drive around in my parking lot at work, I've said to you, I drive a Honda CRV regularly, but this is our go-on-trip vehicle. That's what we really bought it for. This type mm. of trip, we wanted to be comfortable. Yep. And it's not an Acura, which is the upscale Honda, but it's as comfortable as I think you could ever want to be in a cabin. Yeah. And with all the stuff that... It's got a DVD player that we've never used with headsets in the back that if you had kids, they could watch a movie on a 7-hour <laughs> So... As we digress. <laughs> yeah, where do we go? This is the kind of stuff in a, in a thing like, we don't care about your car. Yeah. Sorry, but we, yeah, we when ed- we're in ad hoc mode, like, we're going to hey, go off topic. Next sometimes. time, edit that out, will yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, where, so where were we, anyway? I started it with the beep thing. <laughs> it was my fault. We were talking about local hives. Oh, local, How are your yeah. hives doing? What else? Yeah, so I went into uh, to winter almost the same as you, like about 18. That included a couple nukes. I didn't go in, into winter with my usual nuke condo of uh, four nukes all put together and insulated together. So um, I've lost two top bar hives and one of my nukes. 
But I, mean, I have uh, to say to you, I'm not sure if my top bar is alive. Yeah. That queen's been in there for, I want to say, three years. Should have requeened yeah. her, but I didn't. I've left yeah. that high on its own, and I'm I'm not sure she made it through this winter. See, see that? Couldn't tell. I am lucky that uh, my top bars have windows, right? My top bar's got this little tiny entrance mm -hmm. landing thing. Yeah. Like three inch by three inch. And and when it's cold, they tend to retract back into the box. Mm -hmm. Even when they're flying, they come, they jump on the thing and they off they go. And I can't tell if it's alive, but if I had to guess, I don't think it is. Yeah. I, I hate to say this out loud. Sorry, I broke into your no, thing. It's okay. I want that hive to succumb at some point, which is why I didn't do any maintenance, because I want to pull it apart. That hive was built originally out of old floorboards that somebody had when they put in an oak floor. Yeah. It's half-inch material. Yep. I really want to build, like, the one we saw at the show. Mm -hmm. I only look to the lay-ins sitting next to it and say, what a beautiful box that is, built out of two-inch thick substrate. Yeah. I want a top bar hive in my yard. As nice as that box, my top bar is pretty nice. Yeah. But I want a two-inch one. Because I have some foam insulation on it, and I think it looks terrible <laughs> in my yard. And I'm about looks sometimes. Yeah. And I would love to have a really well... Honestly, my woodworking skill at the time that I built that thing was terrible. It doesn't actually... What's great about it, being a top bar, is they don't care. They build the frames to the warp dimension of the interior, <laughs> right? Yep. But I would love to build a two-inch substrate top bar and replace that thing. What, what is key about that box, as you well know, is originally it was half again as big as it is. Okay. And what I found is I think that that thing has found the Goldilocks principle of not too big, not too small. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect size top bar. Yeah. And for that, I have confidence that I would never change the design. I would just change what it's built out of and make a nicer nicer piece of equipment yep. I was talking about the top bar hive and if it isn't evident to you folks the recording stopped so we have to restart here and hopefully we got the microphones right because I think I'm left and you're right but I'm always right Kevin you are always right Bob <laughs> I was saying how I really appreciate by the way, it's been an hour break, so we don't know what we were talking about, but we're trying to do our best to pick up where we left off. My top bar hive, because it's been in a couple seasons, the engineering of the top rim that supports all the weight wasn't adequate, and so it needs to be rebuilt. And if I rebuilt it, I wouldn't use the same materials. So my plan would be to rebuild the exact same form factor, but use more substantial materials while gaining a better ability to insulate the hive because I like Bob the the top bar that I have and the fact that it's unique. I've never seen another one. It's like a long lang, but it's a top bar on the bottom and it allows you to put honey supers, but the brood nest is treated like the laying sitting next to it in that I don't interrupt it. I have no need to go into that brood nest other than every once in a while make sure it's queenlet, cream white, not queenless. And, you know, I've, I've made a lot of honey with that box too. And I, I really like that. And I want to be able to continue that. Have you ever seen a top bar that's Langstroth compatible? I haven't. And that, that was one thing that was unique. And I, when you first made it, I was really wondering, is, it, is this going to work, right? It, but it did. It works very well. Well, and the other thing in use over the systems, again, if I'm repeating myself, sorry, because we're picking up, but it's the right size. Yes. And that one that we saw in the show was really nice. It was a little smaller than mine, but it didn't have the same feature of being able to use Langstroth frame tops, bars, and... I, you know, okay, so my goal would be that if the hive died, sorry, uh, I would replace it with different hardware, but I would absolutely rebuild it in the same form factor and be pleased to have that in my yard. Yeah. So now we were 
as I recall. On the local hive report, and I interrupted you, so we can go back to yours. Okay, tell, so tell I, us what you got going on. I told you about my top bars. I uh, looks like I lost two out of three. <clears throat> Why? Why do you think that? Uh, what was a queen? Well, because I I have observation windows, so I can look in. I know they're dead, right? No, but I mean, were they fresh queens that we reared, or were they swarms that you captured? Do you know? No, you got so many harps, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to, to me keep to track. And you know, I have to find a better you way. Tend, you tend because I know you. You tend to dump the swarms that you collect or whatever into those, those yeah, because yeah. it's easy to populate them with what, in essence, is a natural package. As a matter of fact, that since you mentioned it, the only hive that swarmed in my yard last year was the little top bar on my back porch. Yeah that swarmed three times because <laughs> I didn't do anything to prevent it from swarming and I, I believe I caught all of them and you're right then I just dumped them into whatever empty hives I have so chances are it was a swarm and wouldn't surprise me that it, it didn't survive the first winter so let's connect the dots on something that we heard we're stealing it from what we're going to talk about in the future if you do nothing but go collect swarms Swarms have propensity to swarm. swarm. Yeah. But they also have propensity in a large percentage to die. Yeah. Okay. So as you collect your swarms and put them in the top bar, if they're if a hive is not going to make it, that would be it. So you don't have a great track record from my recollection yeah. with your top bars. No. So so let's They don't make it through, do they? Um, only the, the little one, I had a pretty. The little good, one did great well, for a long I, run. For, yes, but not, but not recently. Not in the last three or four years. Yeah. But you're right. The first five years, it was almost miraculous how it survived. But let's go back to swarming, and um, again, trying to tie everything together. You would think, you know, what do they say? Only twenty percent of swarms survive the first winter, right? Yeah. Something like that. Right. So. You would think if a hive is strong enough to swarm, that queen is a good queen, right? But it's a second year swarm. That's where I'm going, okay? <laughs> so she's a good queen, so she swarms. Now you've got this good queen. She's really in probably her second year, right? Which is her best year, supposedly. And, uh, you know, why, don't, why do only 20% of them survive? And it's because, what do we also learn? The queen is only really good for one and a half years. Yeah. After that, they're on the downward slope. <clears throat> yes. And so those swarm queens are what? They're one and a half years old. Yes. And they don't make it, the majority of them, through the winter. So it goes back, and this is where I wanted to tie it together, that young queens have a much, much better chance of, number one, surviving the winter, and number two, not swarming. There, we'll we'll talk about that when we get to that yeah, talk. So let's anyway, not give yeah. it all away. But 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 what I will say is, and and I'm going to ask you to reach back. In our early days of beekeeping, we always heard younger queens, younger queens. David Tarpey talking to us at the JCC Center and other places. Did you ever put much stock in it? You're like, yeah. What what's her big deal? Yeah, no. To a young queen. Well, the you know longer, it. the longer we become beekeepers, the more we know how much a young queen makes a big difference. How important, yeah. And my focus was always, how long could I get this queen to live, right? How many winters could I get her right. through? Well, we heard some of that too, which we'll talk about. But, but it really is becoming evident that because we kept asking, well, why can't a queen live for five years like mm -hmm. they used to? That's what we heard. Yeah. Now the question is, why would you try to keep a queen for five years? You, you, there's no such thing in the world. So, uh, so the rest of your yard is yeah. actually three yards, right? You have yes. Valley Crest. Yes. And you have... So let's, yeah, let's finish up the local high report. So I have, um, I have eight Langstroth production colonies. They're, they all, oh, no. I lost one of them. I looked at in on it, and there was a bunch of dead bees clogging up the entrance. So I took the um, uh, robbing screen off, and I went in and scraped out and cleaned out a lot of those. And I saw some bees in it, 
afterward on a warm day, but I'm pretty sure they were robbers. So I think that hive's dead. But overall, my, it did pretty well. My A-frame, uh, Langstroth, yeah. is still alive. Okay. My um, Layens hive. That's the one you got from somebody, right? Because you never I got that from, from Jill. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So uh, that was a split that I made last year. So that's got a good young queen in it. The uh, Layens hive has a young queen in it. No, I'm sorry. The Layens hive has a swarm queen in it. So don't be surprised if that doesn't make it. The one I'm, that I'm up in the air about still is, uh, you remember the log stump that I got? I gave you one, and, right. I, and I kept one. And I've had it for several years. It's a nice hickory, uh, hickory stump. It's like perfectly hollowed out. It's tall enough. Yeah, they were they were beautiful. Mine dried up and broke apart. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, but yours looked great. I drilled a lower entrance to it, and uh, last year was the first year I said I'm going to get this thing going. I put a swarm in it, and I'm not sure whether it's still alive or not because I made an entrance down at the bottom <laughs> but the bees are, are going to be bees they have another entrance they made down at the bottom where the bark is kind of separated yeah. so, so just because there's no bees coming from the entrance I made for them doesn't mean they're not alive so anyway that remains to be seen you have uh, to describe the beauty of this thing somebody found yeah. a, a hickory tree Yep. And they cut a three-foot section and a three-foot section. I got the top one. Yep. The wood was thinner, mm -hmm. and it was a little more dried out. I don't know yeah. if it was closer to the dead part of the tree. Yeah, it could have been. But mine, unfortunately, had two seams in it, and both mm -hmm. of the seams split, and it broke apart. Yep. Yours had thicker wood all the way around, so it had yeah. more substantial... Uh, mass yeah. basically and they had shag bark that's, the bark that's what I was all the way say. around did yours mine sloughed off almost immediately very little of mine has sloughed off yeah that, that's what I'm saying that second entrance that they made is down at the bottom where a little piece of it did but for the most part now this thing had been sitting in my yard for several years now if, right? if you could have said nature I want you to design me a perfect log hive <laughs> that's the one I you, have you have it that's it's, the, one it's have. the most beautiful piece of wood yeah. ever that nature could conceive to put a, a log hive in. They're gonna make me. I have a, you. I have the other one, the uh, which was an old an ash tree. That somebody called. That's the one with the butt. <laughs> that, that's me. okay. You tell it then. That's the one that. <laughs> that's the one in Bucks County that we picked up. Yeah, it looks like a butthole. And when you stand back and look at it, it has a burl, and the hole is right in the between the, the crevice. <laughs> and I, I'm sorry, Bob, but it looks like a butt crack. Yeah. <laughs> so there's nothing, and that's a beautiful piece of and wood too. And it's a too. beautiful piece of wood, but yeah. it just. It just has that smarmy little smirk when you look at it. You can't not see that now. <laughs> Every time I look at it, that's what I see. But anyway, I'm hoping that a swarm will move in there this year. So I've got a couple of those, but that uh, I'm hoping that the the, the hickory makes it. Uh, so we'll see. So other than that, I lost one out of two nukes. I only overwintered two nukes, and that was my fault because I never really prepared them for winter. I had the upper entrance open. I had the, the lid propped up and I never properly prepared that one for winter. So it had a draft just constantly going through it. Yeah. What, what do you have at Deer Path? Oh, yes. Yeah, so, up there? So up at Deer Path, I have uh, five medium hives. All mediums? All mediums in that front yard. And in the yard where you have three hives. The, that, I, you're talking Valley Crest. I'm talking oh, Deer Path. Okay. I'm sorry. That's right. Deer Path. So in Deer Path, I have two eight frames. That are four boxes each. Okay. And I have... Four boxes? Yeah. Eight frames? Yeah. Four deeps? No, four um, medium. Oh, they're medium eight frames? Eight frame medium. Oh, I didn't realize they were medium. Oh, yeah. When Jill... I'll tell you, she, when Jill, who I got them from, she started beekeeping, she did what I wish I had done. That's a unicorn. Which is... I've never seen an eight frame She medium. went to eight frame mediums right from the get-go. Yeah. And that she actually had one or two deep A-frames, and she worked them out of her uh, her yard like the first year. It was like, no, these have to go. I'm going all medium. And 
and they're almost like little toy hives. And the difference they, in, they remind me, if I could conjure one, of my Waray. They do. They look like a. They're pretty similar to the Waray form. They're they are. a little bit bigger, but I mean, I have a frame in, in my yeah. yard, but I can't imagine. So, is the brew chamber three meetings? Yes, the or top, four. No, the, it's three. The top box that I left on both of those is always all honey. But they gotta, if they make it through, they gotta have a propensity to swarm because three yeah. eight frame mediums is a small brood chamber. So I better get to them early. Well, yeah. Because again, this this season is my first experience really with with eight frame equipment. So we'll see. Also, so and I have a uh, double deep up there as well. Okay. Does but, one of them have the sensors in it? Is it the double deep? No. Is it? We don't, what happened to the sensors that were in the spots? So what happened is they never really worked properly. Um, Dave went up there and tried to fix them up a couple of times. They still never really worked properly, and now they're just they're, they just don't work. He actually bought a second package for us and was going to come up and install it, but he never did. So he has one for us that we just need to put. What's the, do you I, remember the name of the company? I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, the one from Europe. I'm trying to think now. Give me one sec. Oh. Anyway, it was the at the time, it was the most sophisticated monitoring system that was out there. And it's still a pretty well-known brand. But yeah. for some reason, the, the setup that we have just was a complete and utter catastrophe you know and it, it was like failure any, yeah it's like anything else <clears throat> the first couple years out you know is is really <clears throat> like a test you know you're you're road testing it and they've made a number of changes since those original the original model which we had we had the original model so <laughs> but but it's funny because we had the his and hers version right we took one we bought two sets Dave, Dave Waldman bought them for our association. Right. He bought two sets from that company. One went into the corporate hive, ours, and the other one went into his personal one. Right. The one in his personal hive worked worked. And he had a fine from great the experience with it. From Everything he ever wanted and more. Yep. So, so he wasn't willing to give up, and he invested in buying the, the new right. and improved version of it. So the sensors are much better. So this year we have to do that. We have to get that in. I think I'll put it up at Valley Crest, though. That, that leads me to um, minders. Well, before we go there, okay. before we leave Deer, Deer Path... Yeah, please. We have to talk about lanternfly honey. Okay. Very quickly. So, you know, I like dark honey. And I usually get my late-season dark honey from the Deer Path hives. So I don't typically don't harvest from them until September-ish, at the earliest even. So this year I open them up, and there's this beautiful dark honey in there. I'm gonna do an air cannon on you. <laughs> that honey that came out of there the, the previous years was yeah. delicious. That's 20, what Eric would say. Yeah. <laughs> 2019. That was that was the year. You know what? I have. Uh, that honey was some of the best honey I have ever had. It had that little reddish tint to it. Yeah, I don't know what yeah. it was, that but Japanese, it was delicious. I think it had a lot of Japanese <laughs> Sorry, in it. So, so I have a half a gallon of that stuff left that I kind of squirreled away. But anyway, that was delicious. So I thought, oh, here we go, 2022. I'm going to have another crop like that one from 2019 that was so good. So I take it home to extract it. And I have a really hard time getting it out of the comb. It's so thick and so dark that it, it really took me a long time to spin it out. But I spun it out, and I got about 50, 60 pounds of it. And I thought, oh, this is great. I got 50, 60 pounds of the stuff I really like. Well, then when I, I went to take it and said, let me check the moisture before I bottle it, make sure it's all good, had in a five-gallon bucket, took a moisture on it, 15.5. Yeah. I had never, ever seen anything near 15.5. The, the driest I've ever seen, honey, was 16.5. 16 and a half, yeah. Yep. So I look at it and go, and you, you could see how thick it was just on the spoon. 
And also, it was a little bit cloudy, uh, even though, you know, I extracted it and it went through all the, the filters and all of that. And when you tasted it, it had a distinctive taste that I couldn't put my finger on. So what did I do with it? I took some, I brought it to your house. I said, Kevin, let's taste this. Tell me, what, what do you think this is? And we tasted it, and your first impression was, it tastes kind of like dates. And dates. I, yeah, it has a datey, yep. medjool date overtone. Yep, and I, I thought so, too. And I said, yeah, you, you got it. That's what it is. It tastes kind of like dates. I wonder where it came from. And then uh, I left. I went home, and you gave some to Sharon. And Sharon tasted it and went up. Oh, caramel. Tastes like caramel. And when you told me that, it was like, yeah, she got it. She hit it right on the head. That's exactly what it tastes like. And again, I so I didn't think too much about it. Well, one thing you didn't say is that it has a fudgy texture to it. Yeah. It's fudgy. It's It's got this viscosity that is That's almost chewy-ish. Yeah, like Which it, is unusual. It doesn't melt in your mouth, really. It, it's almost semi-solid. You could you could squeeze it between the tongue and roof of your mouth, and it and it has a fudgy texture. A fudgy texture to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm thinking, I, you know, it, the taste to me, it wasn't offensive. It, it was good. It was okay. It wasn't as good as what I was hoping it was going to be, like the 2019 stuff. So. Um, then we got invited up to Essex County Beekeepers Association to do a presentation on making mead, you and I. Right. And Landy asked us to come up. So we went up there that night, and I said, you know what, let me bring a jar of this, and I'll let other beekeepers taste it, and let me tell me what they think of it. Well, we get up there, and Landy had purchased a jar of lanternfly honey from Philadelphia from the Philadelphia yeah. Bee Company because the Philadelphia Bee Company has marketed lanternfly honey as lanternfly honeydew forest honey and they, they're making a killing on it I guess because people who like it really like it well anyway she had a jar of this stuff and I tasted it and as soon as I tasted it I said that's exactly what mine tastes like so it was modern lanternfly I don't know that I agree so here's what I think I think your honey is a blend of lanternfly and not weed. Not weed. Because yeah. it does have a little of that reddish tint. Yeah. I don't know how to describe lanternfly honey, but it has a, especially the aftertaste, has a little funkiness to it. Mm-hmm. Almost like mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Yours has that, but not... In an unpleasant manner yeah. is the best way. And, of course, we tried to figure out what to do with it, and we made mead. Yeah. Which reminds me, when I get home, I need to rack. So we'll talk about again. that, too. But I'm very hopeful. The mead, at first racking, tasted very good. So that would be a great use for that lanternfly honey. Anyway, yeah. we can get away from that. So the deer path yard, and this is what's ironic. I saw lanternflies at Valley Crest. I saw lanternflies at my home yard. I never saw a single lanternfly at Deer Path Park. Is that funny? Not a single one. <laughs> so that's why I never put two and two together. But they obviously they found a source, probably during the dearth, you know, sometime in August, and they collected all of this. So my first experience with uh, lanternfly honey. All right, let's go to Valley Crest. I want to say something. Two years ago at our house, it was Lanternfly Central. When it flew, when they flew across the Delaware and came into our region from Pennsylvania. Yep. And if you've never seen these, Google one. They're really interesting creatures. But you look up in the sky and they're flying from tree to tree to tree to tree. Like the year the locusts come out, if you've ever seen that, it's like that. Yeah. We had tons and tons and tons of them in our house, and they they almost alluded to the fact that they're here to stay. Now, how many we had in our yard this year? A token few. Yeah. Here and there. I haven't seen a lot of them. You were saying about how they have found natural predators, things that tasted them and said, hmm, this is something I could eat. Well, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's not just, you know, they've moved geographically, so they're not so much in your area now as, let's say, they are in Landy's area. 
Right. That could be one phenomenon. But the other one that I'm hoping for is that the natural predators over here have discovered them as a food source. Because if that's the, uh, the case, then eventually there'll be a natural balance between the birds that are eating the lanternflies and the lanternfly population. But anyway, so we, we're talking about this. A lot of people that listen to this podcast don't have lanternflies. They don't know what that is. They, we, they don't know what we're talking about. You're so, lucky. So, yeah, so Google it and take a look. These are basically an invasive pest that was brought over from somewhere, China, I think, and uh, it started in the Reading, Pennsylvania area, and it has since spread, and it's in a lot of New Jersey right now. Yeah, all of New Jersey. I'm pretty sure the last report we had is it's it's made its way through the entire state. Yeah, and just again to get, talk a little bit about how what a plague it is. Um, one of my beekeepers friends that I help lives up near uh, Merrill Creek Reservoir. And he said you could stand on the shore of Merrill Creek Reservoir, and for 30 to 40 feet out, the water was completely covered with lanternflies. Wow. That's how many of them there were. That's the plague that they've become. Anyway, all right, so we're off lanternflies. The last yard that I have is at Valley Crest Farm. Valley Crest is a um, organic farm that's since been sold and belongs to America's Grower Row now. But we also, we planted, we got a grant from the state, and we planted four acres of uh, pollinator flowers and shrubs. Yep. So, and we have two bee yards up there. It's bee nirvana. It, it, it really is. So in the one yard, I have five three-box medium-frame new uh, hives, colonies. So those five went into winter. I would say four out of the five went in in pretty good shape. One of the ones up in the front was a little light, so suspect. And then in the other yard, you have three hives, full-size right. langs, and I have one. Um, and, the, and those three were not treated this year, yeah. which leads me to a question. Hmm. <laughs> Never said of this. I'm bringing my treatment-free experiment to your treatment yard. <laughs> yeah. That's... I wonder if there's an impact whatsoever. That's an interesting... That that's a that's for another that's for another uh, podcast. But I would like to talk to uh, to you about that because everybody says you know if you're treatment free, the drift and all this yeah, other you're stuff. Hurt, you're hurting all the beekeepers around you. We have to remember to talk about the barrel feeding and and the yeah. It's it's in the notes. In the notes. All right. Which so, will go back to that topic. So that'll come back for sure. Just to finish up, I have two more hives that are in the orchard at Valley Crest. Yeah. So they're not in this area that, that uh, we have I have a question for you. Did you ever fix the equipment? <laughs> <laughs> now, Kevin, come on. Kevin, you have to go for no. that natural look. No, Bob. You know, the no. bees, the bees, the, you know, they're... If you're listening to this program, <laughs> you need to underwrite Bob's <laughs> way of thinking here because these... These hives look like nobody loves them. They look like some guy that's been keeping bees for 80 years and still using the same equipment. They are so ratty, the bottom boards are rotted. So here's, on, what, here, here's what I will say. Um, these hives were really an experiment, right? When I, they didn't belong to us at first, we were gifted these, but I helped the beekeeper who gifted them to us and we decided rather than painting them, we would use eco wood, wood treatment on them. If you're familiar with what eco wood is, it's kind of a natural product that you put on and it supposedly is a, like a natural antifungal, it prevents rot and it allows it to uh, age naturally, give you that patina, you know, that natural patina. Well, so two things. Number one is we found out that not, not to badmouth eco-wood, but eco-wood is not the answer that we thought it was. That you just put it on once and you're done. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't always give you that nice, beautiful patina that you're looking for. But the other thing about those is those hives were bought from one of the large, I won't use the name, one of the large beekeeping supply companies, and they were simply stapled together. Yep. And the wood has warped, and it's pulled the staples out, 
and, and the, between the look and the fact that they're coming apart at the seams, they, they do look pretty ratty. If I were a company representative, I would say to you, what do you expect? If you left them natural and didn't paint them, <laughs> yeah, the wood would degrade to the point where they would be, you know, you need to protect the wood in order to protect them from the elements. Well, and I would say especially the end grain. You know, the end grain, you yes. really want to paint it heavily. You've got to seal it. You've got to seal it. Otherwise, it's just going to soak all the wood in. And then wet wood never holds its shape. Yeah. That's a key for people to know. Well, and here was the other learning. The bottom boards that were gifted to us um, had plywood. Plywood as the bottom and we know what happens with that again well, especially as, in wet right wet the, delaminates the glues right if the grain isn't sealed which it wasn't they all just simply came apart they expanded and delaminated and, and they and, look and never ever but, but this is the thing talk about the eco wood on yeah. a different light i know they say painting wants to be done with it the first couple of years they looked okay yeah if you had gone through and they're really just pour this stuff in water and wipe them down Splash pretty much mm -hmm. you don't have to fuss if every year you wanted to once or twice a year because my top bar was treated with eco wood because mm -hmm. i wanted to keep the natural wood it looked really nice mm -hmm. and unlike you i went in every year and did it oh. and okay. mine still held up pretty well I really should finish it one more time, actually, now that you say that. But it didn't degrade as much. And I think it took four or five of the treatments because the mm -hmm. first one soaks into the wood. Yeah. So so I think, I, so I agree with In that. all fairness to Eco Wood, because I saw yep. it for sale at the show here. You, you also still have to seal the end grain. So maybe you varnish or something like that on the yeah. end grain. I used to use this stuff called Fino Seal when I was in business. Uh-huh. You would pheno seal the edges of your signboard, and then you would paint it with kills yeah. and paint it with, and those some of those signs. One of them in Bloomsbury, I saw the other day. It's still there. It's still there, yeah. Who who can paint a plywood sign and have it last? It's I think it was 14 years old. Yeah. It looks worse for wear because the paint's all faded after 14 years, but the wood didn't rot. Yeah. So anyway, back to our original discussion about how ratty these these boxes look. Um, when I first took over the mentoring yards, we had some equipment again that was gifted to the club, and it was decades old, decades yeah. old, and so was the cone that was in there. It so was the painted dark, brown too. Dark, it yeah, they were, brown. And so that's what we I used for a number of years, and then we had a palette load of mediums that needed to be assembled so we assembled a bunch of them and that's where we got this no wasn't it yeah we got this York no no sorry I'm, I'm getting mixed up make a long story short we have a new member and Laura and she decided this year that we were going to auction off the excess equipment that's up in Echo Hill in the cabin. It's just taking up room. The mice are having a field day with it. So let's just clear it out of there. We're running out of room. We need some room. So we auctioned it off at the picnic, and she did a great job, cleared it out. Of course, at the same time, <laughs> we get additional donations, yeah. and we were gifted uh, eight-frame equipment, mediums. And so we kept that. So what I think is I'm going to do this upcoming year is change out that eco wood equipment with these eight frame painted boxes uh, that we inherited. So we'll see. I I'm going to yell at you for a minute here. <laughs> what else is new? Come on, Bob. Why you're going to tell we me need about be for new beekeepers? beekeepers have a double deep ten box with regular mediums. At least one or two of those need to be the conventional hive in the alignment with the management mentoring program. Oh, 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 I get it. Uh, Please. I'm, That's so, my request. I, I actually So I'm keeping, to, I'm keeping that yard just for you, Kevin, right? Just no, well, you. it's our training yard. <laughs> Come on. You can have mediums and all the other esoteric stuff, but you at least have two hives for me that have double deeps 
and are going to use conventional mediums because that's what we're training on. Yeah. Do you want eight frame? Can I can I use eight frame? No, I need a uh, ten frame. I have a couple eight frame deeps though. Come that's on. fine. Use them in somewhere else. <laughs> All right. Sorry, folks. All right. Sorry, children. <laughs> we I do my Uncle Roger. We digress. Anyway, that's the end of, okay, of the hive come back report. To... That's the end of the hive report. We're done. No, I got to come back to Broodminder. Okay. Something that you and I discussed and I thought would be uh, interesting to close out this. Let's close this out. Um, I have Broodminders in all my hives this year. I've, I've been really good at it. And I've been logging it every week and see how they're doing. And I said something to you the other day, like, you've looked at my Broodminders, right? I have. We both had the same observation. And it leads us to a speculation that'll be interesting to see how it goes. Do you remember what we talked about? Uh, well, the we've... temperature in the brood boxes yep. is scary. Yeah. You look at the line of the outside temperature, and you look at the line of the temperature of the two sensors, and they're they're almost close. Yeah, so, so the temperature inside the hive is fluctuating up and down, which is exactly what you With don't... With the outside temperature. Yeah, which is exactly what you don't want. You well, want... they all do that. Even my good heavy-duty, big colony hives are still doing that. Yeah, but not to this extent, I don't think. Anyway, well, this that... is what, what we said. You don't remember because... Because <laughs> I have no me- a terrible memory. I know. You, you were <laughs> lamenting to me about your memory this morning. <laughs> Here it is on display. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> I'm going to refresh your memory and you're going to go, oh, Ah, we uh talked about the delta. The sensor and the outside temperature are only a few degrees apart. And you said to me, I'd be worried if I were you that those hives are actually dead. And I said to you, sorry, but the hives are alive because how can the sensor actually be hotter than the outside temperature if there isn't something creating heat in the box? Can I tell you how? And this ties into ATN's talk. Oh, no. What he was saying is the sun, the winter sun beating on the boxes. It's going to heat the honey and hold the heat. And heat the hive so you could have a 45 degree outside and 55 degrees inside. It doesn't mean that your hive is alive. It could be just heat that's been stored by your honey stores. So there. Uh, yeah, but I have uh, insulated covers and other things on these hives. Yeah, but put that, that aside. Yeah. So, so the conversation that you and I had is the logical answer to this, if we think, speculate, which is what we're doing, is that it's a small cluster. And it's just mm-hmm. barely hanging on. And it's just creating enough heat to register that creates that gap, that delta. Yeah. And that... These hives are on the cusp of collapse. That's a sensor possible way to interpret the data from the sensors. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting to see if they make their way through. Yeah. That's what we talked about. So they might, Sorry, might I didn't mean be, to beat up on you. No, they might be on the verge of collapse. Or, if you're lucky, they're just a smallish cluster that's going to make it out of winter, but it's right. going to be a weak hive. They could potentially be far away from the sensor, too. They could be yeah. over on the left side and the sensor's in the middle up above them. Yeah. And in time, when they move through the honey dome, they could come closer to the sensor and register a bigger gap. Yeah. All things are possible in this world. This is a, the kind of cool thing about analyzing the data. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to determine is... And, and by the way, I'm not going to open the hives. <laughs> you know, we can speculate and learn. I probably could call Rich and Theo and friends, and, and they would tell me what it means. But um, they'll probably listen to this and send us a note saying, you idiot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but it's an interesting thing to, to watch. Okay. Now, some of the hives, the Delta is really big. Like, they're cranking a lot of heat. Yeah. They're making... There's no concern there. Well, and so uh, what I would say then is we really need to wait until they start brooding in earnest, right? Because then... We're almost so, there. I feel like beginning of February is yeah, it. That's, is not, it. that's not what brood mine They start. They, they start. start. I'm not saying they're brood like they're building for the season to come, but 
I think they build brood to December, uh-huh. and then they I, I... almost go completely dormant, and then they jump just a little bit to get like started again, and then they start in earnest. To your point, so I don't disagree with you. And that that in, in that February just get started again yeah. comes in February. So in February they are definitely producing more brood than any other time in the winter. But I guess what I'm saying is, if it's a small cluster, the only way to, to for it to register is if they go in all out brood rearing, you know, right, full and they're out, going to maintain the and temperature. And then you'll see the temperature jump right. up. Right, so at that, that ninety plus degree right. rate, so that and will it give, holds. That'll give another. That does occur till March, right? Right. My first, right. March. First, first week in March is yeah. what I've seen. In New Jersey. In, well, in, again, and I've, that was only for a year or so, so it, it could be a week later, it could be a week sooner, but that should help us because it may not go if it's a small cluster. And they have to maintain the brood nest at 94, 93, 94 degrees. Yeah. It may not be enough to raise the sensor to 94, but it might go from being at 65 to 85. And yield that jump will tell you they're still alive. Okay. All right, so we'll look for that. All right. Local hive report, check. <laughs> Is there anything else? <laughs> we killed it. Yeah. All First over. time back, it's been a while. We're all over the place. Well, you know, winter time, you, you have a lo- we've had a long period of time to observe, so there was a lot. So I guess, you know, given this is an hour and something, we could probably talk the rest of the way home, and we will in, in, a, in a little bit. But for right now, we'll call this off. And where do we go next? We're going to get into the notebook and go through the sessions. So that's roll call. And then... If we have enough time and we're not out of voice later today, we'll talk about um, the program we're going to launch because I have to put that out. So, all right. Bob, thank you. We'll be back. Talk to you soon. So as you can gather from that recording, Bob and I had a pretty in-depth conversation there, but there was more to come. And one of the decisions I have to make as I produce this episode is what comes next. I think from a timing standpoint, uh, we also recorded two other items. One of them had to do with what we saw at the show. And one of them was kind of like a TED talk on what is manage mentoring. Uh, Given the timing of things, as I've said in episode 217, I'm going to put these out back to back to back to back. My thought is the next one in succession should be manage mentoring because those of you who are looking for getting started in beekeeping, this is the right time. This is about when you're going to surface and I believe that uh, it would be helpful for you to know that this program is coming and what it means. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion we had. I love talking with Bob. There's so many times when we bounce things back and forth on each other and we might accept what we say or change what we say and come to a different conclusion based on feedback from each other and it's so much fun to have a friend in beekeeping so yeah uh, sometimes we go down the rabbit hole we've been really focused a lot lately on queen rearing and if I could say one thing in advance of what we're going to discuss Lately, I've noticed a theme is that so much of the reflection in the industry has to do with queen rearing. And I don't know if that's because we're doing queen rearing and it's and it's always top of mind. But there seems to be uh, an impression, if I could say, from Hive Life that I'm coming to terms with the fact that fresh, vigorous queens as told to us by Tarpy many eons ago when we saw him, are really super important. And it's not that I don't understand that dynamic, it's that it's finally sinking in as to why. Uh, Continually receiving input to the different parts and pieces that add up to maybe it's time for all beekeepers to start considering the fact that 
going forward, um, replacement of queens is, is something that should be considered. And we'll cover more of that when we get to the Bob Benny talk about a year and a half. And then the queen goes on the downward slide. His thoughts and impressions on that aligned with what we've learned in our decade plus of keeping bees and our observations about how queen longevity uh, coincides with hive survival. So more on that to come in the future. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.